Well, good afternoon uh, and thank you for joining us for this, our first, uh, what we call our safety leadership series. Uh, sessions that we've been holding remotely over the past couple of years and, and we've had some great attendances uh, around the country. And one we're holding remotely here in 2022, but as our topic kind of presupposes, perhaps we're thinking about something different that's coming up over the horizon and maybe we'll be in physical offices presenting these things to you as a group sometime in the future. But it feels hard to kind of let this let this opportunity go to reach out to such a broad audience. Uh, the topic today that we're gonna uh, speak to and, and four different perspectives, I suppose, on this same question. What's next? What, what will we be talking about after we finish talking about COVID? When questions of vaccination status, when questions of mask wearing in offices, when the government directions about people being recommended to work from home subside, what, what does the future look like? And what are some of the things that are worth remembering as organisations and employers kind of stare into the year ahead? Um, I'm joined today by a wonderful panel of my friends and colleagues, Julie Morotta, a special counsel working here in our, can I say dry, uh, Melbourne office. Um, Nerida Jessup and Lucy, Lucy Bocinek, uh, both special counsels in our somewhat more wet Sydney office, um, and all of us specialists in work health and safety. Be before I begin the session, can I uh, acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that I am here on, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation here in Melbourne, where I'm sitting today, and pay their respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And can I similarly uh, invite you to reflect as we go through the session on the traditional owners of the land in which you might be attending from today as well. We've picked four topics. We wanna to talk to you about what the safety and employment thinking might be in terms of the future of hybrid work. Uh, Julie's gonna talk us through that. If we think about the year ahead, the, the war on talent uh, is something which is gonna feature really prominently for all of our clients, uh, for our sector that we, we come to you from, for the legal professional services sector, right across uh, those of you dealing with uh, employees in any number of divisions of the economy. The war for talent is, is critical. And one of the key enablers of that war for talent being fought successfully is providing safe and successful environments for women in particular to work. And so the question of uh, the current state of thinking regarding sexual harassment, the way in which that's regulated, but the opportunities that it presents to get that right is something that Nerida will speak to. I'm gonna reflect on what the great resignation might bring for us uh, as employers. If we think about some of the workforce leaving, that naturally means we're gonna have some of the workforce joining and what are the change issues there? What are the things worth reflecting on? And Lucy, our newest team member over in Sydney is gonna reflect on the issues of contractor management. As business begins to thrive again in the new environment, there'll be a number of new ventures undertaken and some of those will be undertaken through contracted workforces or through engagement with other parties. And the question is how best to position ourselves from a health and safety point of view. And Lucy's got some specific experience she wanted to share. So thank you very much. Please put any questions you have in the chat. We'll do what we can to share those with the panelists as we go through. We'll hear from each of the panelists and then we'll loop back at the end for some, for some final thoughts. So with that, Julie, can I invite you to take the team through your reflections on where we're at in terms of hybrid work and what some of the thinking and considerations might be? Sure, thanks, Steve. Um, so the shift to working from home during the pandemic and now the stage return to usual workplaces, I'll 
be it repeatedly delayed, um, means that businesses are now obviously having to work through what that return to work is going to look like for them on a much more permanent basis. So at the outset of the pandemic, of course, the abrupt shift to the remote work um, that we all kind of fell into as a result of the COVID virus um, was to many of us, I think, assumed to be a temporary arrangement. And in that time, um, you know, we've now learned a lot about what it is to be able to work remotely and appreciate that some of the productivity issues that we thought that there might be associated with that um, actually didn't sort of come into fruition. Um, and we've also gotten used to the flexibility that the remote work offers. Um, and in the face of the great resignation, which Steve is going to talk to in a little bit more detail later, flexibility is likely going to be a feature of job design that businesses will need to be able to continue to offer going forward to attract and maintain talent in what is going to be a very competitive and continues to be a very competitive market. So while some organisations are planning to return to the office in the traditional full-time basis, um, others are at the other extreme and looking at um, embracing a fully remote work model, um, you know, where there's no physical offices at all and all work is actually going to be done completely online from anywhere you know, in the world, arguably, um, as long as you can get access to a stable and fast internet connection. However, it seems that most businesses probably will fall somewhere in the middle, and that is opting for a hybrid work model where workers operate between traditional workplaces and also remotely. And as we can see from the next slide, when we talk about what hybrid work is, um, there's not just one model available, and the concept of what hybrid work is continues to develop. But what's important to remember is that the particular hybrid model that organisations um, adopt will inform the business risk profile and what is going to be required by it to manage those health and safety risks going forward. Here's just a few of the examples of hybrid work models that various organisations are starting to adopt. Anything from what's being described as an office first hybrid model where the expectation is that workers will attend office at some point, either during the week or during the month, either on the basis of set days that the um, that management have set for requiring the team to come in on a particular number of days um, with the option of then perhaps um, working remotely on the on the alternative days. Um, other examples of that include you know prescribing minimum or maximum days of on-site work per week um, um, so that you can perhaps suggest that people are coming in either you know 50 or 60 percent of the time but then I'll have the option of working from home if the tasks that they're doing permit that. Uh, a middle ground is what is described as a flexible hybrid model where you're talking about um, employees mostly probably re working remotely post-pandemic, but the option to return to the office still remains available. So there's no set limits about what the attendance at work is going to be or at the physical um, workplace is going to be, um, but people can come and go depending on what the work requirements actually are and whether or not the tasks you know, um, enable them to work remotely. The remote first is um, idea is up the other end of the scale where we're talking about, um, you know, a priority for um, setting up remote operations so that there are processes in place that are remote friendly by design. So there will still be offices available for workers to come in, but they're really just a complement to um, the remote work arrangements that are, you know, designed around it. Um, the remote friendly idea sort of assumes that there's also going to be an asynchronous um, um, sort of uh, operation as well and that so that individuals or workers won't be expected to be um, you know coming to work at set hours but can actually work their day around what is going to be convenient for them. 
There's all sorts of arguments about which of these models um, are good and bad and for different reasons and which ones are going to be the best for a particular business. But ultimately, the model that um, a business um, adopts is going to impact on the way that it is able to um, uh, meet its safety obligations. And there will be an expectation that they can, that businesses consider and verify that that hybrid model um, is adapted adapted to ensure that it provides a safe work environment for all of, it, all of its employees, including others that might be affected by the way that the business is conducting its undertaking. Um, as we can see from the next slide, consideration of hybrid work, of course, anticipates that part of that work will occur in the office. And when we're thinking about risks of hybrid work in the office space, um, we need to be thinking about it beyond just a simple return to pre-COVID normal with all the same processes and practices that applied before. And that's because that in reality, the issues of the pandemic are going to remain at least in the short to long term. Um, we're starting to see a policy change from public health orders to personal responsibility. And that means that employers are going to be expected to set their own set of rules and expectations around the suitability of controls that's going to be effective in their workplaces, having regard to the number of people that are going to be at work at different times of the day and night, potentially. Um, COVID infection controls will therefore need to be updated to ensure that they accommodate the developments in the public health orders and that public health advice about how to manage COVID transmission risks in the workplace um, are also taken into account, particularly in light of Omicron and other variants that will come into play over time. But in addition to the COVID risks, um, the reality is, is that there are going to be less people physically present on site, either due to illness or furloughing, although that's likely to decrease as rules around the isolation change, but also because there's going to be a natural increase in the uptake of flexible work arrangements. So accordingly, the availability of pre-pandemic site services may not be the same as what they previously were. And so organisations are going to need to think about whether or not the processes and procedures that they had in place pre-pandemic are going to continue to be fit for purpose. Um, you know, will there still be a first aider on site for a reduced on-site workforce? Um, what about fire wardens and emergency evacuation arrangements? Are they going to remain effective when we don't have everyone in the office in the way that we had before? And so obviously those arrangements will need to be revisited to ensure that they can accommodate any changes in the workplace environment that the hybrid work model that's adopted um, brings with it. In terms of mental health risks, um, obviously organisations will need to um, imagine what the, the impact of um, a hybrid work model, including the changes in the office space for mental health risks. Nerida is going to talk in further detail about the psychosocial um, hazards associated with work health and safety compliance. I won't go into it here, but um, suffice to say that, of course, of course, um, those risks are going to need to be reconsidered. A lot has changed in the two years since we've been away from the office, um, and there's a lot of regulator interest that continues to be in this work workspace with an expectation that workplace design and the management of work is taken seriously in considering any, um, the impact on any um, psychological uh, or wellbeing um, issues for employees. The other thing to keep in mind too is that the return to work is a change. Um, it sounds crazy at this point in time, but the reality is it's been a long time since we've been in the office. And so there will be an obligation to consult with employees about the impact of returning to work on them. Uh, we've seen examples this year of some educational institutions, for example, who've been issued with pins um, or being referred to regulators for failing to consult with employees about their arrangements for returning back to um, on-site work. And so it'll be important to remember that we 
we should be seeking feedback from workers about their potential concerns about returning to on-site operations, but also to, to provide information and, um, about the actions that the business has taken to ensure that on-site work will continue to be safe, including ventilation arrangements, cleaning arrangements, and also to the hybrid work arrangements in relation to whatever's been adopted. So moving on to the next slide, um, we see that health and safety considerations associated with remote work is not just a continuation of the existing working from home arrangements that we established during the pandemic. Um, remember, those arrangements were established out of necessity with little planning and without access to various resources. You might all recall that, um, at least in Victoria, office works ran out of printers and uh, ergonomic chairs very early on. Um, and so people were kind of um, you know, doing, making do with whatever they had in order to set up their home office environments. And so remote working arrangements need to be revisited to ensure that they are suitable for a large scale and then long term out of office operations um, for, for workers. Um, specifically, employers will need to ensure arrangements are in place to address both the physical and of course the mental health risks associated with hybrid work. Um, and in doing that, um, should be considering applying ordinary risk management principles. Now, of course, control is an implied element of what is considered to be reasonably practicable. Um, that is, you know, what it is that you're expected to do to be able to manage risks in the home um, arising in relation to work will be impacted by the degree to which the organisation can in fact control those risks. Um, so in addition, um, what is known about the risks of working from home and the available controls is also going to be relevant. Um, there's still a lot to learn about the safety risks associated with working from home on a large scale. And most of the research that's been done to date suggests that um, you know, that there is still so much to learn and has been done in the concept in the context of a pandemic. Most of the regulatory guidance material is also directed at managing work from home risk in the context of government imposed restrictions during the pandemic. And so what is considered to be reasonably practicable is expected to continue to, to develop on a case by case basis um, as we learn more about the risks over time and new technologies emerge in relation to work from home arrangements. Um, and so it's going to be important that businesses stay on top of that developing knowledge and consider revisiting its practices and arrangements as that knowledge, uh, knowledge develops. But at the very least, employers will be expected to actively turn their minds to what the job design will be for hybrid work. Um, so what type of work can be done at home and during work hours? Um, there should be some parameters about where employees can work. Um, if there are no restrictions on where people are expected to work, it could be taken by employees as being, um, you know, agreement to work abroad or interstate or, you know, from their beach houses. And remembering that those workstations um, have not been assessed by the organisation. And so um, the risk controls that you might have had in place might not necessarily apply. Um, to manage workers' compensation exposures as well, it will assist to clarify the location of the workplace and the work hours, and also the expectations that you have about daily work activities, whether or not there's an expectation that people can take breaks during various times of the day, um, lunch breaks at different times, et cetera, or whether or not there is a, a more structured approach to how the day is supposed to roll through. Um, of course, however, there's going to be tensions um, in setting those sorts of parameters around the concept of flexible work um, compared to more fluid working arrangements. And so they, there will need to be some consideration about making the most of that flexible work arrangement, but without kind of losing sight of the obligation to have some sense of what workers are doing on a day-to-day -day basis. 
Um, the other thing to take into account, of course, is work equipment. Of course, suitability of home workstations and, um, will be important. The question, of course, is how is that going to be done going forward? Are we talking about physical inspections, um, virtual inspections, or getting employees to complete checklists that can then be reviewed internally? Um, that's obviously going to need to be taken into account in terms of making sure that the arrangements that are in place are appropriate. Um, but also need to be considering other equipment that might also be necessary. For example, those employees that are receiving deliveries or you know, things of that nature may also need things like trolleys um, to, to help them perform their tasks at home safely as well. Um, for, in terms of communication protocols, it's probably a very key element of making sure that the working from home work arrangements work effectively. Um, for a number of reasons. One is it enables you to have adequate supervision of the tasks that are being performed by your workers and ensure that they know what they're doing, but also to that they have confidence that you are still around and part of their work day. And in that way reduces the isolation, which we know is a well-known risk of working from home in any event. Um, it also provides an opportunity to observe workers' wellbeing, to making sure that we're checking in on them on a regular basis and actually physically seeing how they're actually tracking. Um, Working from home and not having that access can actually be a real issue in terms of being able to check in and keep in touch with our with workers. Of course, incident and hazard reporting is another key um, key factor, um, and that businesses should have in place appropriate arrangements to ensure that they that employees are clear about how they do raise safety issues um, and report those. Of course, information instruction and training should be directed at both enabling employees to understand the risks associated with working from home. We know that people are much more sedentary when they're working from home than they were um, when coming into the office. The opportunity for incident, incidental exercise has, has largely disappeared. People are largely moving from their desks to their couches, often even back onto bed. Um, and so it's important that in, um, employees understand what the nature of the certain risks are at home and that steps are taken and that they're given information and instruction about how to manage those risks. Also to what expectations there are of employees in managing work health and safety obligations, the Act also imposes duties on them as well. Um, and that means that they are required to comply with your reasonable policies and directions associated with working from home. But in addition, there will be an expectation that they take account of their own work health and safety and do things like, you know, keep the area clear of trip hazards and things like that. But it will be important that all of those expectations are set out in appropriate remote working from home policies and procedures. Um, the last slide um, is really just a summary of the key points that we've just been talking about now. But I guess just a couple of final comments from me. One is that just to remember that the type of work um, hybrid work model adopted will inform the company's risk profile. And so um, the voluntary adoption of a hybrid work model should really be well considered and deliberate. Um, applying sort of a let's see how it goes approach um, could result in an unsuitable model emerging and the creation of expectations or habits that are then very difficult to pair back or to enable you to comply with your health and safety obligations going forward. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that the current laws are definitely broad enough to ensure that employers remain accountable for providing safe work environment for a safe work environment. Um, and so the, the question though will be um, seeing how that law develops over time to clarify the extent to which employers should and can exercise control in relation to at-home work arrangements. Um, but the model laws are due for review, I think in 2023. And so that will provide some opportunity uh, for review of the legislation to, to ensure that it keeps in pace um, with the changing work practices, which are certain to continue to evolve in the post-pandemic world. 
And that was it Thanks for me. Thanks so much, Julie. That's a great insight. And, and you know, the, the take-home message I think has to be, while we've muddled through to some extent over the last couple of years, there's some deliberate choice ahead of employers. You know, those three models you've set up of what is the primary way in which we're expecting people to work at home, at the office or neither. Those are, those are really critical and, and challenging decisions for employers. But I think they represent you know, opportunity too. So th thank you so much for sharing that. We'll come back for any, for any final thoughts from you, Jules, but I'll hand over now to Nerida. And as I said, I think one of the central uh, challenges for employers and one of the central opportunities is to maintain that position as an employer of choice, perhaps a hackneyed phrase, but one that I think is really gonna come to the fore as we think about the challenges in the labour market coming up over the next 12 to 24 months. And the key plank to that is making sure that you're providing a workplace in which women can be successful and can thrive and can feel safe. So Nerida, would you mind taking us through what's been happening on this topic over the past few months and, and, and what you see employers should be doing in the future? Sure, thanks Steve. Um, and I will just take you to the next slide if we can. This slide really just sets up a few of the milestones over the last few years in the, the I guess in the space of um, psychological mental health WHS regulation and more recently uh, WHS regulation in relation to sexual harassment which I don't know if we call it, it's been an emerging issue over the last few years um, and we talk about you know what are the issues we'll be talking about when we're not talking about COVID I, I don't know that either, either of these issues have gone, gone away as Julie mentioned uh, employers have been grappling with the, uh, the way in which they ought to approach uh, the management of mental health and the monitoring of mental health performance um, in the context of distributed workforces during the time of COVID. Uh, and now we are seeing more and more focus on how employers are actually managing sexual harassment, which is, as we know, a psychological risk, um, but is, is more and more being seen as a, a health and safety issue. Um, just by way of context and background, it's been a few years since the Boland review, which we spoke about a lot of the time. Um, Marie Boland looked at the model WHS laws. Uh, she found that in general they were working as intended, but, but expressed, expressed some frustration uh, that psychological injuries didn't seem to be reducing in the same way that physical injuries had been. Uh, over the period of time since the model laws had been introduced. Uh, she called for urgent law reform in that area. Um, safety regulators have, have heard that call and heeded that call and, and um, since that time have produced a raft of materials and, and developed a, a pretty strong um, regulatory focus on management of psychological health at work. The first of that was the Safe Work Guideline in um, January 2019 and more recently we have seen both New South Wales and WA introduce codes of practices uh, for the management of psychological health at work. Um, more recently there has been an increasing focus on how employers are managing the you know fairly difficult issue of sexual harassment at work. Um, much of this was you know the catalyst for much of this was the the 2020 respect at work that was um, prepared by Kate Jenkins, uh, who, who herself expressed frustration that, that anecdotally um, incidents of sexual harassment in the workplace didn't seem to be reducing over time. Employers didn't seem to be taking a systematic approach to proactively managing the risk of, of sexual harassment. 
uh, and recommended, one of the recommendations that was made was that a positive duty, very, very similar to the duty that sits under uh, health and safety laws be introduced into the Sex Discrimination Act, requiring employers to take that proactive response. Um, we haven't yet seen, uh, we haven't yet seen those, those law reforms either accepted or, or adopted by lawmakers, but what we have seen is an increasing focus and, and expectation on safety regulators to really treat sexual harassment as a psychological safety risk and a safety risk that is covered by work health and safety laws. Uh, and so having seen safety regulators really develop a policy approach to um, how employers ought to be managing psychological safety in the workplace, we have over the last uh, 12 months seen a similar, uh, we've seen them follow suit in, in the area of sexual harassment um, recently, the Safe Work Australia has published a guideline for preventing workplace sexual harassment. Uh, and late last year, we saw the WHS ministers meet. Um, and one of the uh, outcomes of that meeting was a discussion about how all of the jurisdictional regulators were developing and strengthening the enforcement regime that sat around uh, preventing workplace sexual harassment in the workplace. Uh, we've seen a couple of other quite significant um, reviews and inquiries. Dan Andrews called for a, um, an inquiry into preventing sexual harassment in the workplace and, and has actually called for a review of, of mandatory reporting obligations in relation to sexual harassment. We've seen a range of, you know, fairly harrowing stories coming out of Parliament, out of the court system, out of FIFO workplaces with a range of, of um, inquiries uh, run across the country into um, sexual harassment issues in workplaces. Um, and that has been accompanied by some really um, very strong, very vocal advocacy from the likes of Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins, um, really picking up this issue of the Respect at Work report, picking up this issue of sexual harassment being a, a safety issue, a workplace issue. Um, and so while we have been talking about these issues over the last few years, uh, they certainly aren't going away and I think we will continue to um, and we certainly will see, uh, you know, a, a really clear focus from safety regulators as they develop their systems to respond to um, education and enforcement of WHS laws as they relate to psychological safety but in particular sexual harassment. So if we move to the next slide. Please, thank you. Um, this really just sets out, this is a bit of an overview of some of the codes of practices which have been developed at a state level. So in New South Wales and, and Western Australia, um, these codes of practices uh, address the issue of management of psychological uh, risk in the workplace. And they, they do draw heavily from the Safe Work Guidance, Safe Work Australia Guidance that we saw published quite a few years ago, I think in 2019. But what they do have in common is that you can see that there is an expectation that employers will pick up the management of psychological safety in the workplace as not an individual uh, case management issue. So it's no longer, um, it, it is no longer an issue of managing individual issues injuries, grievances through EAP processes, you know, rehab processes um, or reactive processes. 
employers are expected to adopt a risk management approach that is forward facing, looking for risks and hazards in the workplace, developing a systematic approach to um, mitigating those risks and hazards, you know, through applying the hierarchy of control. Uh, so we think about high order controls to administrative controls. It is no longer considered enough for employers to be applying administrative controls to the management of psychological uh, risk. Um, and there is a greater focus in all of these codes of practices and guidelines on aspects of uh, the design and management of work um, on underlying risk factors in workplaces which need to be uh, identified um, and um, uh, risk assessed uh, and controlled by uh, workplaces um, and a greater understanding of the impact. So, the, the connection between types of stresses and types of um, risks and hazards um, and the impact on mental health as well as physical health. Um, the, in terms of enforcement action in this area, what we are seeing is increased regulatory focus where uh, jurisdictional regulators are expecting that employers have a system of work, you know, a, a, a risk-based approach to managing psychological safety in the workplace. Um, we have seen a willingness over a number of years of uh, regulators to take fairly strong enforcement action against employers in respect of uh, mental health issues or, or alleged failure to um, manage the risk of mental health risk in the workplace. And those enforcement action and those prosecution actions that we've seen are really focused on the failure of businesses to have adequate systems in place to manage psychological risk of the workplace. Um, so while these guidelines and codes of practices are really useful, quite sophisticated resources, they are being used as tools of compliance, essentially, as a state of knowledge about what employers ought to know about the management of mental health and the actions that they ought to take um, to reduce the risk so far as reasonably practicable. All of this sends this very clear message that organisations need to be proactive in eliminating and minimising the risk of, of psychosocial hazards in the workplace. And as we turn to the next slide, we are actually seeing, um, we are seeing the issue of sexual harassment now being increasingly recognised as a, a psychological hazard in the workplace, so a risk to employees' mental health, uh, a risk to their physical health as well. And um, there is now an expectation that not only issues of work design, stress, fatigue, um, organisational change which might impact on mental health, employers must also take a, a proactive approach to managing the risk forward-facing of sexual harassment in the workplace. A lot of this has come out of the um, Respect at Work report, which I briefly mentioned, but the, the report is, is it's a lengthy read, but it's a really interesting read. Um, the author talks about the success of, of WHS laws and that positive proactive duty, that the primary duty under health and safety laws, um, which requires uh, employers to be proactive. Uh, and, and she talks of the, the experience of um, safety regulators and employers not dealing with sexual harassment in a robust, consistent or systematic way. Uh, and she talks of the urgent need to raise awareness that sexual harassment is a work health and safety issue, um, which requires cultural and institutional shift in order, you know, to be um, appropriately regulated and managed by employers. Um, 
we have seen since that report that there has been really, again, guidance published by Safe Work Australia, we would expect more uh, resources, more guidelines, potentially codes of practice, um, which address the risk of sexual harassment. Uh, and we've seen quite a bit of, um, quite a few resources applied from government to safety regulators to actually skill up on this issue, to take a proactive approach, not just to education, but to compliance and enforcement um, of WHS laws really to address uh, this risk of sexual harassment. Um, the guidance is really uh, worth a read. It, it, it's interesting in that it sets out some of the issues, you know, characteristics of workplace that, are, you know, would give rise to a hazard and risk of, of sexual harassment. Characteristics, so physical characteristics, but also organisational characteristics. So, you know, a few of the key um, risk factors to look out for a low worker diversity, and that is not low worker diversity in the ranks of an organisation, but actually um, in leadership roles. So male-dominated leadership um, is seen as a, a key risk factor for sexual harassment in the workplace, as is very hierarchical structures in an organisation. And there are a range of other types of issues, um, obviously alcohol, you know, remote work, um, contact with third parties and, and various industries are seen as, as higher risk. So the expectation that um, employers have um, had upon them for quite a few years, technically for a decade or so, but you know more recently to manage psychological safety as a safety issue, you know really that has brought into sexual harassment as a safety issue. And I will move very quickly to the last slide. Um, which is what does it all? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for employers? And, and what should they be doing? Um, the first thing is to review your risk management approach. Make sure that the issue of sexual harassment, and psychological safety, is addressed in a systematic way. Um, a risk, you know, and a risk-based approach is being taken to managing those risks. Um, and these issues should be before the board. Uh, so sexual harassment, psychological safety should be part of WHS governance frameworks and reporting. There need to be in place uh, robust sexual harassment policies and procedures. Employees need to be instructed and trained on that. Uh, and there should be uh, data capture about um, incidents and, and, you know, looking at sexual harassment issues as, as safety data, you know, data that can, can be learned from looking for trends, looking for hotspots. Um, Organisations are moving to um, an empathetic victim-centred approach where complainants are provided with support um, when um, complaints are being investigated. Uh, there is a move to ensuring that even very senior roles are held accountable First of all, for showing leadership in, in, on the issue of diversity and sexual harassment, but also, uh, you know, for, for ensuring that there, there's not, um, you know, what we've historically seen where there have been pretty high profile promotions of individuals following sexual harassment um, complaints um, and making sure that all these policies and procedures and, and this, this approach to sexual harassment and, and psychological safety is the subject of training and instructions um, so that workers and leadership are aware of their obligation uh, in respect of these issues. Steve, I will hand back to you. Thanks so much, Nerida. That's um, a fascinating tool through this, this hot topic. I mean, you and I and, and the team on this call have the benefit, I suppose, in our jobs of dealing with the boards of you know, major employers across Australia. 
and I can say oh, I think this is the topic that, that is exercising the, the board's mind and for many of them they ask you know if we weren't getting complaints about health and safety if nobody was complaining about the absence of guarding on a machine would we still fix it and the answer is of course you would so if the approach you have to mental health at work or, or, de or dealing with sexual harassment risk is we're only going to deal with the complaints that we get and then we think our job's done I think there's a growing awareness now that that is not quite right that's not adequate and, and more could be done so th thanks so much briefly I, I just wanted to just reflect on this idea of a, of a great resignation, uh, something much spoken about, not yet felt perhaps here, uh, but, but perhaps looming, particularly in uh, younger workforce cohorts, as borders reopen, as chances go to have overseas uh, breaks in careers, uh, as we uh, have the reflection that people have had sitting at home with a career epiphany, uh, is this what I want to be doing? Can I do something else? It's time I open that bookshop or side hustle that I've been working on. It's plainly the case that there's going to be dynamism across workforces throughout Australia over the next year. And my thinking, and, and, I, and I've set this out on the next slide, is, is to appreciate this as a change event. This requires, you know, the reflection that we would ordinarily have to, to change management, to ask well, what are the consequences? What might the unintended outcomes be? What might the less obvious or less predictable outcomes be of, of changes in workforce dynamics? plainly with a, a series of departures we run the risk of losing expertise in the organisation and to fill those gaps we're going to recruit new people who won't have that experience who won't have that innate understanding of risk in workplaces or health and safety systems or uh, non-written health and safety requirements we run the risk of failing to properly onboard or induct new starters and that's a key event you know in the in the years i've been doing I'm told by LinkedIn, 19 years I've been doing this work. Uh, my sense, anecdotally perhaps, is that health and safety incidents either happen to the very new in a workplace or to those who've been there a very long time and run the risk of complacency. Both of those, I think, are factors that employers need to proactively identify on their risk thinking and ask themselves, well, what can we do about that? I do think this is a process of what we might call change management. We do need to reflect on what the risks are associated with understaffing people making do with the team that they've got to do a job that otherwise would have required more people or assumptions about moving someone from one team to another. And just very briefly, I just wanted to highlight three cases that have, that have been decided uh, as Work Health and Safety Act prosecutions over the last very short while that really speak to these, these very issues. Uh, the first of these, uh, Jane, on the next slide, deal with a worker who uh, was a kid, 21-year-old worker, goes to work for an organisation called All Seasons Gourmet Produce, uh, effectively a, a food production, manufacturing and dispatch business. He starts work on Christmas Day, if you can kind of believe the tragedy of that, and he's on his very first shift when he gets his hand caught in a conveyor operating in circumstances where he tried to clear a jam associated with that particular machine. And I must say my you know, short career associated with this work, I've seen any number of circumstances where a worker has tried to do the right thing, has tried to keep production going, has tried to keep the machinery in operation and has tried to clear a jam and has suffered in some cases, you know, fatal, tragic consequences. So it doesn't surprise me that we have a case here of an organisation and importantly, its director, who failed to ask the question, what do we need to do to equip this worker to properly understand their role 
So we need to think through not just the core role, which is the management of the production operation of this particular piece of machinery, but what are the sorts of events that are likely to happen across their shift and what training or what direction do we need to give them? And the direction might be as simple as uh, ensuring that you are not accountable for, in, in this case, clearing a jam on a machine. We've got a maintenance department, put up your hand and somebody will come and help you. Don't feel you need to fix it yourself. This particular worker wasn't really given any proper induction or any proper training, was put on the line. And you can imagine the circumstances where an organisation is desperately needed to fill a position, has brought someone new in and has simply let, let that person loose on a, on a piece of dangerous machinery. And as a result, this kid has you know, lost a number of fingers and carries the scar as a result of that. It's an interesting case, this, in that not, not only was the company prosecuted, plainly this is a systemic failure, uh, properly inducting new workers is a key obvious thing that a business needs to do as a necessary training uh, requirement. But so too the director of this particular company prosecuted and fined you know, a third of what the, of the, of the company's fine. And this I think is a, is, a, is a broad trend we're seeing across a range of these prosecutions. If I take you to the next slide, um, this is uh, not a dissimilar set of circumstances. A worker brought on broadly trained in the various SOPs that would apply across the uh, enterprise and then for the first six months dispatched to a, a discrete area of the business. Somebody calls in sick, a worker's needed to do something which is you know, manifestly dangerous, working in a confined space in and around mobile plant, putting pieces of cardboard in between aluminium casting inside a shipping container, being dispatched and brought in by a forklift. This worker finds themselves pinned to the wall by the actions of the forklift, misunderstanding what was required from their role. Sure, they'd been told about the SAP six months earlier, but a change event happened. And I've got to say, you know, when we look at these cases that we get involved with, uh, even as advisors, inevitably uh, these sorts of incidents occur at the intersection of four maps. You know, a change event somebody not paying attention uh, at a supervisory level in terms of dispatching somebody, somebody making an assumption about someone's training and competence, somebody doing a job to keep production going to do the right thing, and all those things are the, are the Swiss cheese that convalesce here in, in, a, in a worker suffering a serious incident. So thinking about your workforce mobility is, is critical. If we do dispatch somebody to do a new or a different job, you know, what, what do we need to do to make them successful at that and what, what do we need to do to satisfy ourselves? And that might be refresher training, it might be a reinduction to a task. What do we need to do? If we're going to cover that gap in production, what's the safety change management consequence of that? And to be honest, you know, this is a risk that for most organisations, if you make assumptions that somebody can do a job they can be dispatched to do because it's similar to the job they were otherwise doing, but not identical. The very last slide I just wanted to show you again on, on this idea that in, in the current environment, you know, many businesses, uh, perhaps medium to small businesses in particular, are muddling through with the resources they've got. You work on Monday morning to work out who's been caught in a home quarantine situation, who's caught COVID, who's resigned, who's moved on, and you make the best you can with the workforce that you've got. And here, a council was prosecuted, and not an insignificant prosecution and fine, uh, in result, uh, as a result of a fatality that arose during effectively um, charitable or community-based work uh, the men shared, something we'd, we'd all be familiar with. Uh, a worker moving in and around um, uh, another group of untrained volunteers doing the best they can 
not quite having the appropriate expertise to do something that involved irrigation piping and finding somebody was struck on the head in circumstances where they weren't wearing, you know, for example, a hard hat and weren't within an appropriate exclusion zone. I just call this case out because I think it speaks to the risk you have of workers who give it a go and, and try to do a job that they you know, plainly wouldn't be competent or trained to do. And again, not, not through ill intent because they're trying to achieve an outcome, but the risk associated with this. And, and secondly, I suppose, I, I just bring this case to your attention because it's a trend we're seeing of, of prosecution activity outside of traditional employment relationship, traditional employment work. This a council being prosecuted for what a community organisation uh, was doing, um, working in and around uh, some, some excavation activity. Uh, again, you know, in years gone by, a, a charitable venture like this might have escaped that sort of regulatory attention. But we're not seeing that's the case now. Government agencies being taken to court for failing to manage COVID risks in the environment. Charitable organisations like this, schools being taken to court. There's a real trend, I think, of a broadening of the, of the health and safety regulatory attention. So those are my observations, thinking about the great resignation and pausing and asking the question, well, what might that mean for us? Uh, and there's some thoughts there that, that I just want to leave you with. So I'll hand over now to, to Lucy and, and I guess, you know, variations on the theme. Lucy's going to talk to us about the next question, the supplementary of uh, a workforce with the expertise of an external contractor. What am I supposed to do? I engage an external expert. To what extent am I required to look after what they do, to supervise them, to direct them, uh, and where should the line be drawn? And, and, and Lucy's going to talk to us about something that is an extremely high-profile case when it first hit uh, the news in relation to a prosecution happening up in ACT, and Lucy's had some involvement and, and some insights to share. So I'll hand over to you. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks, Steve. Hi, everyone. Yes, I've got the pleasure of talking about contractor management. Everyone who's gone before me has talked about all our fun new buzz topics, and I'm back to an old favourite in contractor management. Um, and that's really why we kind of want to talk about it today. Um, um, contractor management, both pre-COVID, during COVID, and now on our return, is still going to be one of the most challenging issues that we face in work health and safety. And it's one, as lawyers, that we probably still receive the most amount of questions about from our clients. And contractor management, despite it being such a prominent issue, um, there's still a clear lack of guidance um, from regulators on models for contractor management and recommendations about how to manage contractors. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to talk about it today. And also, I suppose, as we're returning back um, to a normal workplace or as a new normal workplace, um, organisations could be recommencing uh, projects that they put off during the pandemic. So again, that's one of the reasons we're going to have a look at contractor management. And if I move to the first slide here, just, just a real reminder about contractor management being all about control. Um, it's really um, looking at who's going to have control over certain things in the workplace, plant and equipment, over work activities, and looking at it and going, well, we, what approach here is going to have the safest outcome for this work, for this uh, project? We know that principal contractors can rely on specialist contractors, um, and that reliance can be reasonably practical in a number of circumstances. 
but also what the case law has established. And I think it was one of the topics of the previous safety leadership series presentations that we did. We learnt the lessons from the McConnell Dow case, um, which was about, well, if something's within a principal contractor's expertise, as well as a specialist contractor's expertise, the principal is going to demonstrate, has to demonstrate that it took other reasonably practical measures and if to, to you know, comply with its duty, ensuring that it effectively selected the contractor for the work and it undertook assurance activities in accordance with its own obligations under the legislation and also perhaps under the contract um, to prove that it met its duty. And as Steve foreshadowed, there's been a new case um, that's came down at the end of this uh, last year, and it's on the next slide. Um, and it's a case that we were all very, very excited about. <laughs> as safety lawyers, we were talking about it to our clients because it was shaping up to be the biggest work health and safety prosecution um, and most ambitious prosecution in Australia. Um, and we were finally going to have um, a prosecution against a managing director of a major company who had no real connection to the day-to-day -day activities occurring on the site. It was really, you know, a corporate officer was up for um, a due diligence charge. And so a lot of attention was on this case. And uh, you've, you've probably heard about it, but I will go over the facts um, just um, to refresh anyone who doesn't know about it or it's been a while. <laughs> so um, just a refresher. Um, it was a construction site of the University Canberra Hospital. Multiplex was the project um, manager and um, the principal contractor of the site and it subcontracted a company called RAR Cranes to provide crane services and, and operators to operate some cranes on the site. Um, one afternoon, uh, Multiplex asked uh, RAR cranes um, to conduct a lift of a generator and RAR sent a crane operator um, named Michael Watts um, to the site and he used a pick and carry crane, so a Frana crane, um, one that moves around, to move a 10.3 tonne generator around the site um, and it was getting, it was early evening in, in winter. Um, um, when this was happening, so it was quite dark at the time. And the crane towards the very end of the lift overturned and um, as it overturned, its boom struck and killed one of Multiplex's workers at the site, a 62-year-old man called Herman Holtz. He was standing around the, the crane at the time. And in terms of what had happened before the lift, um, there was a lot of pressure um, on placed by Multiplex um, as, as well um, on RAR to move the generator before nightfall and before the next day. Mr. Watts and the RAR crane dogman, who was also there, um, connected the crane um, chains to the wrong part of the generator. They fitted the super lift counterweight on the crane in the incorrect position. And what this meant was that the crane's computer was making incorrect calculations during the lift. Um, Michael Watts was overriding the crane's alarms and crane safety system in order to move the generator. Um, and when the crane finally overturned, it was actually at 130.5% of its capacity when it tipped over, um, right near the end of the lift. As always, um, that's the way it, it, it happens. You think you're safe and finally at the end, something, something tragic happens. And why we were so excited about this case again was that WorkSafe ACT had charged two companies, both Multiplex and RAR Cranes, as well as seven individuals connected with the incident. 
So the crane driver, Michael Watts, was charged with manslaughter and in the alternative, a category one charge under the Work Health and Safety Act alleging recklessness. Multiplex was charged as well as its site safety officer, its site supervisor, um, an RAR and an RAR dogman um, were all charged with um, reckless um, conduct under the Work Health and Safety Act. And Multiplex's CEO, Multiplex's site manager and RAR's um, managing director were all charged um, with Category 2 breaches under the Act. And how did it all end up? Well, in the past two years, it's it's kind of um, been far less um, than we thought it, it, it would be. Um, Michael Watts in 2020 pleaded guilty to a Category 1 charge under the Work Health and Safety Act. Um, and so the, the manslaughter charge was gone. Multiplex at the very end of last year pleaded guilty to a Category 2 charge. And RAR Cranes has also pleaded guilty to a Category 2 charge under the Act. And they had a sentencing hearing in January and that will be, um, decide, the decision will come down later next month. And the charge against all the um, other individuals were dropped. So what started as nine charges ended up with three um, convictions. And um, Multiplex um, ended up having a $150,000 fine and a conviction recorded against it. And that was it. And coming from um, a Category 1 charge originally, you know, that's a considerable change. So what actually happened and what were the findings of court? Well, we'll find out on the next page. Um, so what the court ended up finding um, was that Multiplex's offence um, was limited to its failure to require the completion of a site-specific risk assessment by RAR um, before the lifting, the crane lifting task was performed. So it was a very, very limited charge. The court found that Multiplex removed a level of protection which it had put in place to address the use of an inherently dangerous um, machine on its site and that ensuring a crane was operated within its parameters was one of the factors that the site um, safety risk assessment sought to address. The Chief Industrial Magistrate Walker found that the risk of serious injury or a fatality in the absence of a proper risk assessment should have been something within Multiplex's contemplation and was therefore foreseeable. So that's what we were talking um, before when we talk about control and what's within um, the expertise and knowledge of different contractors on site. And Chief Industrial Magistrate Walker also noted that it was entirely reasonable for Multiplex to rely on RAR employees to carry out its specialist assessments that they were trained and retained for. Um, and Multiplex was not liable for any breach of duty flowing on from the exercise of those skills. However, its obligation to apply safety me uh, measures that, um, such as cross-checking processes here um, was a separate obligation that didn't um, depend on RAR's specialist skills. And it was something that should have been um, instituted by Multiplex as the principal. So this ended up being a really interesting decision um, from something that we were so hyped about um, to begin with. It really ended with a bit of a, a thud. Um, and there's been a lot of criticism of the penalty handed down to Multiplex because it was so small in the scheme of things for such a big company and for such a, um, a fatality that um, was so prominent and we heard so much about. Um, interestingly as well, Multiplex was able to argue um, in its sentencing hearing and the prosecutor actually conceded that any connection between Multiplex's failure to comply with its duty and the death of Mr Holtz was speculative. 
Also, another interesting point is that the facts about that ended up or that came about in Multiplex's decision were very different to what we knew about the case before and what the prosecutor had conceded in the Michael Watts case. So when Watts pleaded guilty to reckless conduct, um, he was, um, and the, the, sorry, part of his decision and there's something that the ACT Supreme Court really focused on in his matter was that Multiplex pressured him to use the crane to move the generator despite his own reservations about it. Um, and it, Multiplex had had prior conversations with other RAR personnel earlier on in that day um, in which it, um, Multiplex refused to use uh, RAR's first choice of crane because they said it was too costly and it would cause too much of a delay to its um, schedule of construction. So strangely enough, none of that information ended up in Multiplex's decision or in its charge. And now the thing we have to look forward to is the RAR Cranes decision, which as I mentioned earlier, is coming down in uh, the latter half of March. And it's gonna be really interesting to see what the, uh, the judge, who's the same magistrate as in this case for Multiplex, is going to say in relation um, to Multiplex's conduct in the context of the RAR um, Cranes matter, um, since that the fact that these facts about Multiplex were um, a factor in Watts's decision, I'm sure they're going to play um, the same role in the decision in the RAR matter. So, um, We'll keep an eye out on that and everyone keep out an eye out on that. And now I'm conscious of the time, so I'll quickly go through my last slide here. It's really just wrapping up on contractor management and what we have to think about now um, that we're coming back to the new normal um, work environment. So these are the real key factors, understanding the job, undertaking risk assessments to know what the job is going to be um, and providing relevant information to contractors for um, tendering for the works. Then looking at qualifying contractors, you know, ensuring that they are actually themselves qualified to undertake the work and also put in place appropriate contractual arrangements and terms um, and ensure that they have share the same safety values as you. Before work starts, conduct a review, consult with a contractor, um, make sure they know all the site rules, review contractor um, documentation as appropriate to your expertise. Um, look at ongoing monitoring of contractors, verifying their performance throughout the duration of the works um, and ensure that they're complying with both their contractual obligations as well as their safety documentation. And finally, circling back, looking at contractor management as a life cycle approach. Um, if any incidents occur, reflecting on them, talking to them, um, lessons learned, um, discussing them with the contractor as well as um, within your business at the end um, of um, an engagement with a contractor and see whether they fit in the business and whether there's anything to take on from um, engaging with that contractor into further projects. And that's it from me. Thank you so much, Lucy, and so great to get your insights on that and your inside running on some of the, the nuances of that case. As you say, something old, something new, these, these issues and this complexity of this area what is enough to do, what is too much to do, what's our job, what's a contractor's job. They're really nuanced but important issues and, and perhaps as we kind of return to normal operations, the things that employers should put front and centre. I'm interested in any quick final thoughts as we as we leave the team. Uh, what's your take home message for the group, Jules? You might be the, the first you're on mute for this session. 
apologies, everyone. Um, I guess the take-home point from my perspective is that um, in the in the excitement of everyone wanting to adopt flexible working arrangements for their workforces, that we don't lose sight of the fact that employers still retain an obligation to ensure that they know what their workers are going to be doing on a day-to-day basis and where from, so that they can ensure that they're applying appropriate workplace health and safety um, arrangements to ensure that they continue to do those works safely, wherever that might be, at home, in the office or elsewhere. Cool, that's great insight. Nerida, what's your take-home thought for the, for the team? Uh, I think it's an interesting space, the development of um, sexual harassment as a safety issue. It makes a lot of sense, but I think it, it's a really good opportunity for employers to get this right, um, to get this right as, a, as, a, as the right thing to do, um, but also manage legal risk in, in doing so. Yeah, excellent. Thanks, Nerida. And, and, and if any other topic, it's a chance for the safety profession, I think, to work with the HR team, to work with the executive team, to work with the culture team and, and, and ask, well, what can we do to help? Uh, and it's a it's a great opportunity, I think, that sort of real integration and, and, and adding of the value chain for a group that's already been adding a lot of value over, over the COVID period anyway. Lucy, a final thought from you? Thanks, Steve. Yeah, I suppose my thought is, look, while we've got all these new things we're focusing on while we're going um, and returning back to work, don't forget the old things and also perhaps look at new ways of doing the old things that we've been been doing as well um, and refocusing on them and thinking, what could we do differently? What can we do better? Wonderful. Thank, thank you to my three co-presenters. Aren't we lucky to have uh, this talent and these insights put together in this session? We'll be hosting another safety leadership series uh, over the coming months and so please stand out for, uh, look out for any uh, invitations that might be coming your way and, and, and we've had some questions in the chat and I think we might use some of those to help inform the next session for now I'll let you all return to Wordle for the week um, but otherwise thank you so much for, for joining us and we look forward to seeing you all again soon.